Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Daniel Skinner, a political scientist and health policy professor at Ohio University's Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. We're talking about the role of healthcare in the 2020 presidential election. Dr. Skinner is the co-director of the Osteopathic Health Policy Fellowship and an associate editor of a peer-reviewed journal called Critical Public Health. Dr. Skinner also is the co-editor of the book, Not Far From Me, Stories of Opioids and Ohio, and host of a podcast called Prognosis Ohio, addressing healthcare and healthcare policies. 2016, healthcare was uh, part of the campaign. It was a debate. Uh, then it was about the uh, efficacy of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, in 2020, all the polls I'm seeing, at least in the primary states that we've seen so far, says healthcare is the number one concern of people. So, is it going to be more of an issue in 2020 than it was in 2016? Thanks again for having me back, Tom. Uh, yeah, it it does continually rank high. I think there's some partisan differentiation there. The Demo- it ranks higher for Democratic voters than it does for Republican voters who tend to be focused more on the economy when you look at kind of what their number one is. But it's within the top three for everybody. Uh, you know, it is interesting to, to realize that uh, – more than, you know, uh, well, 12 years down the road from the Affordable Care Act, we're still talking about health care as this important pressing issue. And I think that's because we've realized that health care has not just become it's, – it's not just a health issue, right? Health care is an economic issue for many Americans. It raises all these other different kinds of questions. So it's kind of this magnet, I think, for um, various policy questions. Well, that leads me to my follow-up. And, and is it access to care – is it quality of care? Is it cost of care? Or is it all of those things depending on what economic strata you're in? Yeah, it's all of those things. Of course, when, when, when I teach health policy, we still adhere to this kind of triad of health, of, of cost, access, and quality. Of course, the name of the Affordable Care Act 
uh, you know, promised affordability to be the focus, but really the Affordable Care Act's main contribution was access. Of course, we have you know, more than 20 million Americans getting health care for the first time, more Americans having reductions in their premiums and their, their out-of-pocket costs. Uh, so, you know, that, that's, that's true of the Affordable Care Act. At the same time, most people don't know what's really in the Affordable Care Act, uh, you know, in terms of how much it helped us advance the research for understanding how to drive quality right? Um, you know, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute is this new thing that was established by the Affordable Care Act to just study outcomes and to really get a, hand, uh, get a handle on that. The question of cost is, of course, the one that we are now trying to wrestle with. And, um, you know, some Americans were real winners from the Affordable Care Act, but in general, the trends, you know, it slowed the cost of, of, of the, the increase of cost but um, you know, it's it's slowed the cost. Uh, healthcare continues to become more expensive. One of the things that we hear, if you listen to the news or any of the debates, always focuses on the car cost of prescription drugs, mm -hmm. or the pharmaceutical costs. Mm -hmm. uh, is that wrapped into the healthcare concerns, or is that a separate issue? Well, it depends who you talk to, right? I mean, of course, you had this funny moment back in 2016 where, you know, um, Secretary Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, then Donald Trump, um, candidate Trump, you know, they, they both talked about how they're going to come in and, you know, go hard on the pharmaceutical industry and they're going to negotiate prices and they're going to solve this. Um, you know, President Trump spent about 20 minutes in the room with the pharma executives and kind of came out with his hair muffed. You know, <laughs> it was pretty amazing. You know, I think he realized just how powerful they are. Um, you know, right now in the Democratic field, you know, they're, they're you know, before we get into the differences, there is consensus on a few issues, and, and pharmaceutical pricing is, is one of them. Uh, the Republicans and, and President Trump's uh, interest in this issue has waned. You haven't really seen much action there in the last couple of years at all. But every Democratic candidate knows that this is an issue that's got to be dealt with. They do have slightly different ways of dealing with it. The, the big pharmaceutical lobby uh, if we can make that into one unit, I know it's several, but uh, they claim that to research a drug, to uh, do all of the necessary studies for a drug, to wind the way through the FDA, uh, Food and Drug Administration's processes for licensing a drug, all of that is what makes the drugs so costly. On the other side, you hear people say, no, it's just gouging. Mm -hmm. um, where, does the, where does the average folk come down on that? Yeah, well, I, before we get to average folk, I will just say that you know, the, the, the question, one of the things I tell students to do first is you, you need to get into the weeds. You can't paint with too broad of a brush. Different drugs are different, doing different things. Some, some drugs are cures that you do a, re a regimen and then you're cured of something for a long time. That's a one-time thing. But when you talk about something like there's a lot of talk in the state about insulin pricing, something that you need daily to live, that's where a lot of the action has been and a lot of the outrage recently has been on these kinds of things. What I tell students to do is to really, if they're interested in the cost of a drug, you know, find out who the manufacturer is. And you can do some research. Sometimes it's not always easy to get or even possible. But you need to know what the research and development or the R&D budget are of these different companies. And I think people are pretty shocked when they realize that in some cases, 
what companies are putting into R&D is actually pretty low, just a few percent. It doesn't always hold up that they're just, you know, the profits are just getting poured back into research that has a tremendous public effect. I don't want to begrudge the role that some pharmaceutical companies have played in advancing, um, you know, these kinds of drugs, but we don't want to oversell it either. I will also just mention one of the things that's a pet peeve of mine, a lot of what ends up becoming uh, the research and development base of pharmaceuticals comes out of federally funded monies as well, coming out of the NIH. And that's something we don't talk about enough is the way in which the, the public- research. Yeah, and the public the foundations research. then become privatized. And I think we need to keep an eye on that. I know that you um, do a podcast for WCBE in, in Columbus, Ohio, um, called Prognosis Ohio, and you look at health issues and healthcare policy as it relates to Ohio. Uh, I, I want to circle back to that later in our discussion, but I, I, I want to use a launching pad to look at us more nationally mm -hmm. and then come back and, and, and make it a little more parochial. Uh, when we look at healthcare issues as it comes into the 2020 election, Let's let's sort of parcel these out. Let's look at President Trump's view mm -hmm. of health care. Um, in 2016, it was get rid of the uh, Affordable Care Act. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, some people argued get rid of pre-existing conditions, uh, allowing yeah. pre-existing conditions. Uh, what? How would you characterize what he's running on as far as health care goes? Yeah, and I, you know, I, when talking about these issues, I, I always try hard to make sure that I'm being as fair as possible in, in sure. evaluating it. But, but I will start with a statement that I really do not mean as a political statement at all, which is that historically, Republicans haven't prioritized health policy. Right? Uh, when you go back to think about Paul Ryan and just you know, decades of, of Republican legislate, legislators and presidents, tax policy has been far more important. So they don't have a Teddy Kennedy or a John Dingell or these names that have been at it for, for, for decades. And now Bernie Sanders' name gets put in there as well and others. Um, so that said, you know, President Trump, when he was elected, came in with these very big promises to undo the Affordable Care Act and to replace it with something, you know, in classic Trumpian rhetoric, uh, something beautiful, something amazing, something much better. Much you're, better. You're going to just believe me, you're going you're gonna to be blown away by it. Um, and folks probably remember some of this this discussion. I mean, it was close in 2017, um, you know, in the first full year of, of that legislative agenda when Paul Ryan was still Speaker of the House, the famous thumbs down by Senator John McCain before he passed away, uh, where those efforts uh, sputtered out. And, you know, it was pretty clear at that point. You talked to Mitch McConnell, I think it is in the end of 2017, um, the majority leader McConnell, he basically said, no, we're not going back. We're, we're, we're done with that. Yeah. I mean, they, <laughs> we're not touching that. They, That's they, toxic. Yeah. They, they couldn't figure it out. They, you know, they didn't have a replacement bill. That could solve the problems. And I think that's one of the things I always like to Or as the Democrats framed it, they didn't have a plan. They didn't have a plan. But I also want to just impress upon listeners the importance, you know, when we think about the doing and undoing, the changing, this kind of thing, you know, President Obama uh, t really stuck his neck out in, in making health this major health care reform his first major policy priority. Uh, he really did change the conversation. We saw that in 2017. 
uh, pre-existing conditions exclusions are not something that Americans are going to accept again in a big way, right? There, there are certain things that have where the milepost has, has, has changed. And I think that when we think about what's coming next or, you know, undoing and doing, we have to also pay attention to the way the conversation is, is changing in a longer view. Uh, uh, maybe a way for some of our listeners to think about that is that the uh, conversation on same-sex marriage mm-hmm. changed over about a 10-year period yeah. to very uh, sides with very clear demarcations to, man, this isn't such a bad thing, you know, after all. Yeah. Not everybody, but the conversation yeah. changed. No, that's and right. that's what you're saying. That, that is, although the gay marriage issue kind of took some people by surprise. It happened fast at the end. I think with healthcare, it's like we, we see it coming. We know. And I think that Republicans know this, too. The president knows that, you know, in a couple of years, you know, th- there is anger about a bunch of different things that will throw them out of office if they don't address them. Pharmaceutical so, pricing is one of them. So I'm, I, I'm not trying to be partisan either, but we hear from the president's lips that he's doing everything possible to protect uh, people being excluded based upon pre-existing conditions. Mm-hmm. Yet there's litigation yep. that, that I know of uh, from my legal background that's going on that does just the opposite, that in fact takes away pre-existing condition protection. Yeah, we have this huge looming thing right now, this uh, court case, Texas v. Azar. Um, and you know, if, if the Affordable Care Act is overturned, we will have millions of people who overnight could lose their health insurance access who, for whom pre-existing conditions can be used to exclude them. Uh, you know, that that's going to fall on the lap of people like Governor Mike DeWine. I mean, the states are going to have to address that. And when the president says that he's doing everything he can to solve these problems, we have to ask, well, the, but the, I mean, the, the administration has been a strong proponent of moving this case forward. The one thing they did that I think is extremely telling is they asked the, um, the courts and the courts, you know, there, there was an effort by some Democrats to move this court case up so we could have a discussion in the 2020 election. The administration um, resisted that, and now we're not going to probably have a decision on that case until the election's over, which, you know— Slow it down as opposed to speed it up. Yeah, except that, you know, we could—it would change the dynamic this year if you had 20 or 30 million Americans who said, wait a minute, where'd my health care access go? So uh, it's one of those, uh, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. Pay no attention to that lawsuit out there. Uh, just listen to what I say. Yeah, and this is the, one of the big you know, $50,000 questions is um, how do people vote? Do they vote based on rhetoric or do they vote based on the nuts and bolts of their financial or their, their health situation? And right now we're in a, in a moment where, um, you know, what Democrats are going to have to do is they're going to have to really impress upon people who might be in that vulnerable category, hey, this is you we're talking about so, here. So let's go back to that category. And I know there are many stratas of society, but the average middle class person, whether they're in Ohio or Pennsylvania or Michigan or wherever, you know, it's mom and dad at home, probably a couple of kids. Uh, they've got aging parents. Uh their concerns are what? Well, it's really hard to, to paint, I think, with quite that broad of a brush. But out-of-pocket costs, 
I mean, we've developed a system where um, in the absence of a national health insurance program, and I'm sure we're going to get to that, you know, out-of-pocket costs are high. I mean, now health economists look at out-of-pocket costs and say, well, to some degree, you know, have, having so-called cost sharing, this is be a, a, a premium, a deductible, the copay, um, you know, the, it does make people think about using healthcare services, you know, to make sure they actually need it or whatever. That said, um, you know, the out-of-pocket costs have gotten extremely high. And, and what, one of the things, and, you know, that many of the candidates who are running on the Democratic side have taken aim at, if they're not uh, supporting the bigger Medicare for All kind of plan, it, it, it is trying to reduce out-of-pocket costs, to cap them at 8%. Or, right now you have people who could be paying 20% out-of-pocket, at, you know, based on their total uh, and, income. And everybody is, higher. everybody is, that we've talked about is fearful of a catastrophic illness or a catastrophic injury. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, that, a, a catastrophic injury that they might not even be, I mean, they might not even be able to make their premium payment for uh, to get there to even access. Th- those are called underinsured people. And that's one of the legacies of the Affordable Care Act is the Affordable Care Act took a big whack at the uninsured population, reduced it by significant amounts. But now we started to have this conversation of people who have an Aetna, Aetna plan or United Healthcare or what have you, but their out-of-pocket costs are such that they just don't end up you know, going to the doctor at all because they can't afford to. Well, let's shift parties now. Let's go the Democrats in, and I think we have to start off with Bernie Sanders. He's the one that's been preaching health care, Medicare for all uh, from the get-go. I know that many of the candidates have variations of that, but let's start off with an understanding Mm -hmm. of, of that. That's a great catchphrase, and it implies that everyone will have health care. But what does it really mean? So, you know, Medicare for all specifically um, implies that everybody would have Medicare, which is an interesting part of this conversation because it's not the Medicare plan that we currently have. Um, Listeners will probably know that certain parts of Medicare, Part B, has a 20 percent, you know, premium. Um, The if if Senator Sanders' plan uh, were to become, uh, you know, reality, it would, by most people's estimation, be the most generous, most amazing healthcare plan in the world. So when we think about Canada or the UK or Australia or some of these countries that have really good health outcomes, universal coverage, uh, Senator Sanders is going further. It's an actually interesting thing. For all the criticism he gets, he's actually quite what we call an American exceptionalist. He talks about the United States being the best country so we deserve the best health care system. Uh, so people sometimes don't realize the scope of that. They don't have uh, dental coverage, for example, in, in Canada. Senator Sanders' plan calls for a universal dental coverage, mental health services, of course, uh, maternal services and all of that as well. Vision. Yeah, yeah. Well. I mean, things that we tend to parcel out. We don't do very well with dental, for example, in, in the United States or mental health, but it covers all of that. But So we're looking at this amazing moment, not just in the United States history, but where Senator Sanders envisions the United States being able to be the beacon that other countries look to and say, that's what a robust, amazing system looks like. So if, if his policy would get passed, though, it would basically eliminate private insurance, private health care insurance, correct? Yeah, and this has been one of the threads of the conversations that we've had in the Democratic debates. 
Um, Senator Sanders has been, you know, um, you know what, whatever criticism you have of Senator Sanders, and there's people out there, of course, um, he's been very consistent for a long time on this issue. Uh, he thinks that the role of, of profit, the role of private money in healthcare, uh, is one of the big problems with it. Um, now, so he's modeling that piece of it on the Canadian system, not the British system. There's a distinction there. The Canadian system has effectively outlawed private insurance. You can't buy a private insurance plan in Canada. And the goal there is that everybody's in the same system, and therefore the system then it can become more efficient. It doesn't have any kind of leaks to it where you can just opt out if you're affluent uh, or if you just want to go to the fancy dock or something and pay out of pocket. It doesn't allow that, and that's, that's a design mechanism to keep the integrity of the system together. Okay. So his Medicare for All would give health insurance to every American uh, uh, across the board as a matter of right – uh, and the government would pay for this how? So here's just a really important distinction that a lot of people don't know. It's one of the moments where I get to be a teacher in my job, <laughs> which right. is that there's a difference between how you deliver health care and how you pay for health care. What Senator Sanders is talking about is how we pay for health care, which means that we would fund health care in the United States through a tax that would create the system. That does not mean, however, that the United that the, the that healthcare would be delivered by the government. Okay, so let's stop right there. Yeah. A, a tax that would create a fund that would pay for the system. That's the single uh, payer part. Yeah. But but people might um, equate that to social security. Mm -hmm. People pay a social security tax mm -hmm. as they're working so that they get a benefit at the end. It's a fund mm -hmm. that that uh, employees and employers pay into that it then allows payment to retirees. So this would be a fund mm -hmm. by taxation of varying degrees mm -hmm. to varying groups of society that would be used to pay for the 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 delivery of healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and, you know in it, in its policy design very elegant, right? It's very simple. We have one one kitty that we pull out of to provide health care for everybody instead of what we have currently is a multi-payer system with, you know, all sorts of different, you know, I mean, it's, it's very complicated and it continues to get more complicated. Yeah, I don't think the average person can understand their health care. No, no, for sure. I mean, the average person, I, you know, not even the average person, people with all the fanciest degrees from elite institutions, you know, try to ask one of them to read their homeowner's insurance contract or their health contract. <laughs> They're not going to do very well with it. No. All right. So, so he's proposed this, but the, the one of the major attacks on him throughout has been that nobody truly knows the cost. Yeah. Uh, uh, of this. And yeah, okay, we may be okay with making a tax, but we don't know the cost. And how do we keep costs under control? Yeah. So, I mean, it's one of the, uh, I think, dirty little secrets of a lot of policy, which is people don't know the actual costs of a lot of things. Um, think about the, the tax cuts that were passed under the Trump administration in 2017. The, what they did is they do a 10-year forecast, but they put a lot of the stuff in the 11th year. So it looks a lot better on paper. Uh, you know, there are all yeah, sorts right. of budgetary tricks. And, you know, the Congressional Budget Office, which looks at this stuff, tries to sort of flag flag these these things. But the truth is, is that, uh, we you know, lots of things can happen. Coronavirus is 
totally rattling the uh, global economy right now. You need to plan for those kinds of things. Uh, you don't know when they're going to come or what they're going to do, but they're going to there are going to be things. With regard to um, Senator Sanders' uh, plan, I mean, he, you know, they talk about anywhere from you know thirty trillion to fifty trillion dollars over ten years. I mean, it's, we're talking about astronomical numbers, but the healthcare industry is an astronomical number. And you know, I think a lot of times people don't appreciate just how much you know money is in our global economy that we're talking about with something like healthcare. So while the numbers can seem kind of stunning when you talk in trillions, Senator Sanders keeps coming back and saying, "Look, we're already paying a lot of this." I mean, the, you know, when you look at the actual difference, what he's trying to do is unearth it and simplify it so that we can have something that's a, a more efficient uh, and effective system. And I think part of his proposal, if I'm not mistaken, but jump in if I am, mm -hmm. uh, is that the the taxation would be graded based upon income mm -hmm. to the person. So the billionaires uh, that he's always pointing to would pay a much higher rate into this fund than, than Joe and Sally average. Oh, yeah. And keep in mind, I mean, when you look at Social Security or look at Medicare, some of the taxes, the way we've done this, especially with payroll taxes, is people will pay, you know, in Medicare, you know, up to, I forget the number exactly, but the first hundred and thousand and something dollars, you know, and then, and but up to, you know, after that, they're not paying into that system. I mean, I'm never going to make $200,000 in my life or even be in that category. And most Americans won't when you understand what the, the average American makes. If you change that to $500,000 or just lift the cap altogether, solvency comes in all sorts of different ways. So Senator Sanders is out there saying, look, yeah, you need to pay more. We need more from millionaires and billionaires. We need to have a more progressive tax system. Um, and that's the fight that he's fighting. He's not hiding that conversation at all, which is something that a lot of people really like about him. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. All right, so then one of his compatriots uh, and rivals, uh, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Uh, frenemies. Frenemies, that's right. She's for uh, Medicare for all, but she's got some twists on it, correct? Yeah, I, I should just say before we turn to Senator Warren's, you know, even six months ago, and we're talking in here at the end of February. Right. Even six months ago, you had a lot of sort of claims from many of the candidates running. Yeah, I, I support Medicare for all. 
But then as you got into the nitty gritty of the debate of the debates and getting down to the policy, you know, most of them have, have sort of peeled away. So somebody like Pete Buttigieg or somebody like Amy Klobuchar, they will say, of course, of course, Medicare for all would be great. But you're right. Right. And so Senator Warren is in the same place, although she certainly you know, has much longer history of supporting Medicare for all. It, for, it is for her the policy vision that we need to get to eventually. The question for her, and she's trying to find this middle way between the Klobuchar's, Biden's, and Buttigieg's. Right. Um, the, the question for her is how do we do it, over what time, and you know, and, and what are the political ramifications of massive disruption of something like our healthcare system? And, and is she looking to alter the concept as it relates to cost or how it's going to be paid for? What What is the couple of differentiations between her and Bernie Sanders? You know, uh, Senator Sanders, especially since, as we're talking now, he's generally considered to be the front runner, kind Correct. of like the in polls and in, in the way the, um, the, the primaries are going. Uh, you know, he's been forced to come out and provide more detail, even though still doesn't, you know, make everybody happy. happy or go away. But um, Senator Warren hasn't had that quite that level of scrutiny. She hasn't really offered that kind of a detailed plan around the paying. She talks about her wealth tax. She talks about this idea of, you know, one or two percent tax on, you know, just on wealth, uh, which wealth accumulation would also capture things like money when money you make from stock dividends and things like that. She thinks that when you do this, you 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 I mean, and the numbers do check out that there's a lot of money in there. Whether it's enough to pay for a Medicare for all plan is not clear. But what I'm saying is she hasn't been quite pushed to provide that level of detail yet. But she is in agreement with Senator Sanders that it should be no private insurance. It should all be provided through this new and revised Medicare plan. Sure. But the middle way she has established, and this is what happens in you know, political contests like this, she's trying to differentiate herself between Sanders and the people who are more uh, on the center, right? right? What she is saying essentially is, yes, of course, Medicare for all is the aspiration. It's where we need to get eventually. But for now, in the short term, she's not promising day one, week one, I'm going to come running with this. For her, you know, rooting out corruption and dealing with some of the other aspects of, you know, the banking industry and these other things, that's far more important to her. She the thinks economic that, disparities. Yeah, and yeah. once you get that under control, she's saying, then you can start to really think about paying for something like Medicare for all. So she she is in the same group that Biden and uh, others are in, which is calling for this public option right away, uh, which is a return to the 2009-10 discussions. Uh, you know, which would be an abil- a program that people could buy into. That would be publicly run, like like being able to, you know, if you're 45 years old, you could still buy Medicare, for example, as a kind of halfway getting there to make sure that people have good coverage. So let's lump together, if we could, mm-hmm. uh, Buttigieg, uh, Klobuchar, and Biden. Mm-hmm. They seem to be, if we have Bernie and Elizabeth Warren on the uh, progressive left, Mm-hmm. of the arguments across the board, you have the centrists, which are usually those three. Yeah. Uh, are, are their proposals, first of all, can you characterize their proposals? And secondly, are they pretty much in sync with each other or are they different? They're, you know, and this is where I just want to remind your listeners, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, there's an old saying that you, you know, campaign and poetry and govern in prose, you know, and <laughs> true. And, and it's really true. So true. And so, you know, 
I don't get too hung up in a lot of the details with this, and the details are kind of moving targets in a way. It's fair to put them basically in the same category. Um, Joe Biden, Vice President Biden, has staked out his, I was, you know, President Obama's right-hand person. I, you know, the Affordable Care Act, don't don't criticize it. He keeps going back to that. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, it's really smart that, we, that he was involved in all right. of that. Um, and he wants to, you know, and he wants to say we need to build this, we, that there are things that we want uh, wanted to accomplish that um, we weren't able to accomplish because of congressional majorities. So and, don't start all over. Let's yeah. take this as a framework and let's tinker it and make it good where it's bad yeah. and expand it. Yeah. And, and, you know, and again, for him, just like Klobuchar, just like, uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg, a public option is a big part of this. Right? Now, the public option part, as I mentioned before, it goes back to 2009 to 2010. President Obama had originally pushed hard for this. Folks may remember that it was one of the things that got peeled off in the negotiations for the Affordable Care Act. Senator Joe Lieberman from the state of Connecticut, by the way, Connecticut, huge insurance state. Yes. Right? All, a lot of the health insurers have their their um, Hartford. Head, yeah, their headquarters there. Um, Senator Joe Lieberman made his vote for the Affordable Care Act contingent on taking out the public option. The bill wasn't going to pass without it. So. You know, that bill, in a way, what, uh, what Vice President Biden's proposal comes down to is almost a restoration of the original idea of the Affordable Care Act, which was to have this public option that would be extremely efficient, extremely effe- uh, effective, modeled kind of on a Medicare logic, but that wouldn't replace the entire system. And the argument, and this is an argument that Klobuchar, Buttigieg, and Biden all sign on to, is wow, these private insurance companies are going to really have to compete with this public plan because it's going to be lean, mean, and really good, and people are going to like it, and it's going to drive competition and uh, innovation in the whole industry. I'm trying to think how people are reacting to that. And obviously, if you look at the the election results in the primaries, they they aren't grasping that as as warm and fuzzy. and I'm wondering if they don't understand it, whether that's getting down in the weeds and it's too complex for them, or yeah. they don't trust, one, government to run anything efficiently, yeah. and two, that private companies will compete. Well, I mean, Senator Sanders is doing pretty well. So, I mean, right. like, in a way, we have to talk about that, which is why do people vote for somebody in a primary election? It's not clear that they are lost in the weeds of the policy ideas. Senator Sanders is basically promising, saying, look, we need to go after these these institutions that have been keeping us from doing the things that democracies do for a long time. Once we get rid of them, you know, the, the honest, the elephant in the room here, and it's not even a Republican comment, the elephant in the room is that unless the Democrats have a substantial majority in the Senate and different majority too, there are some existing Democratic senators like Joe Manchin from West Virginia, right. they're not going to vote for maybe even a public option at this at this moment. Doug Jones in Alabama, if he gets reelected. So a lot of this is all just, you know, a pipe dream conversation. What I think Senator Sanders does is that he brings that poetry part, which is think big, and the pragmatics don't necessarily excite people. But circling back to where we started, it moves the conversation. It does. It does. And I think that we're having what, yeah. a different conversation in 2020 than we had in 2016. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you know, does Bernie Sanders think, think that he's going to become president and, 
you know, wave a wand and Medicare for all is going to happen? No. I mean, he, he can do math, too, even without Andy Yang around, you know. He can do math as well. Um, and he knows that, but he knows what he's finding. And his whole campaign is based on this idea that people are tired of the status quo. And, you know, the, but the, the argument that Klobuchar, Buttigieg, Biden, Steyer, to some degree, are making is, no, we need to, like, make people, we need to reduce people's anxiety about massive disruption and change. You know, the, the old thing about, like, who are these people who love their health care plans? Well, it's true. Most people don't love their health care plans. I don't love my Ohio University health care plan. It's fine. I, I feel lucky to have it. But I'm not going to go to bat for it. But the idea of spending some time moving into a different system is just anxiety-producing for lots of people. You're used to it. Yeah. You're used to it. You know how it works. You know what your – Or doesn't work. Or it doesn't work. You know what your copay is. You you know what you've got to get pre-approval for. Uh, It's it's comfortable. It's like wearing an old coat. It, It is, even if the old coat is not so good. And I think that's one of the things that's hardest to deal with here is that People do expect – we have a tradition of people expecting very little since Watergate, right? right. They don't trust the government, right? They, they, they expect very little for you know their dollar. And what Bernie Sanders is kind of saying is, well, no, we, we, we can expect more. And then you have other folks who are saying, no, we need to like worry about people's sense of disruption even when we might not totally agree with it because I think the truth is – you get all of these people behind the, you know, off the microphones and everything. They're all going to tell you because the health policy people are telling you, at least on the left, that Medicare for all is the smartest way to go. But, you know, the politics of running on Medicare for all is a totally different story. And that's the game that's being played right now. Well, and then you add in from a political sense, not from a, a medical sense, uh, the the whole idea of the the specter of socialism and, and right, what right. that means. And, and, you know, are we becoming a socialistic society if we embrace Medicare for all? And, and, and that gets garbled. Of course. And, you know, and Bernie Sanders' response to that is, I think, right in this case, which is, you know, there's socialism of all sorts for banks and for tax abatements for companies moving into different places. Or there's also, you, know, you want to talk about socialism, then you need to talk about it. In it a, across in a, the board. Right, yeah. right. Not in this kind of just red flag, you know, um, uh, way that, that about Democrats, um, you know, and that, that that's, a, that's a little bit of a, that's a rhetoric issue in my view. When you actually look at the policies that Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren is, are, are putting forward, even though they are on the progressive side of things, I mean, Warren has distinguished herself from Sanders by saying, "I am a capitalist." And she yeah, says this right. Is very open. I am a capitalist. Yeah, and so and, it's going to take longer for me to get there. Right, but I mean, of course, Bernie Sanders is a capitalist too. He's not. I mean, I've studied political theory for years. He's not a you know died in the wool Marxist or something like that. He's more of a kind of social democrat, like you have in Scandinavia, right? I mean, these kind of people who say. Yeah, the markets are going to be the markets, but education and healthcare have got to be different. There's some fundamental goods that have to be protected. They're not normal commodities. They're not just something like you know selling potatoes or something like that, or you know, a car. Two other candidates that we have not talked about. One is Tom Steyer. He may be gone, uh, but uh, he may have a presence in South Carolina. We don't know how how great. Um, does he fit into that middle group? Yeah, I, and I guess I have to concede to that. I mean, this is this is the interesting thing about you know uh, 
this conversation has been going on and then you have this role of billionaires who think they can kind of like out billionaire Trump, right? Like Mike, Bloomberg and Steyer. Bloomberg and Steyer. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Bloomberg wants to hold it over Trump's. I forget what Steyer's holdings are, but you know, Bloomberg is, is, is massively more uh, wealthy than Trump is. Um, you know, it kind of out, mil- out billionaire, the billionaire kind of thing. Um, yeah, Steyer and, and Bloomberg are trying to get traction. Uh, those who saw the first debate with Bloomberg, I mean, Bloomberg got hit pretty hard, and it hasn't been going so well. But do they have a healthcare uh, proposal? And if if they do, is it the same as the centrists, or is it the same as Bernie's? Yeah, I mean, so so you know, Steyer goes into the category with um, with Biden, Bloomberg, and Klobuchar, and Tulsi Gabbard, who we haven't talked about. Uh, you know, that they they think we we should keep private insurance as part of the mix here. Um, that's not a too controversial perspective, but he's in that camp. You know, he, his, his thing is about equity and about softening the edges of the markets, right? He wants to say, like, yeah, capitalism is fine, but the excesses of capitalism have to be dealt with. That's the role for government, right? And he's been making – since he put all of his uh, money on South Carolina, literally, uh, his play there was to say we need to talk about equity and racial equity as well. As as we go through the primary season and candidates start winnowing down, uh, will that change the conversation? Yeah. So, you know, campaigns are all about alignment vis-a-vis others, right? So Warren had to distinguish herself from Sanders um, because if they're the same, if they're both the Medicare for all people, then – you know, then it becomes about can, you know, those discussions we had about a woman taking on Trump. And there becomes all these other different kinds of elements that the pundits start talking about. Uh, and the same is true. You know, right now, Biden and, and, and Klobuchar and Buttigieg have been just basically trying to distinguish themselves from those folks. They're fighting for that middle ground. Yeah. And, you know, the result has been that neither, none of them have really gotten too much traction out of it. I think um Biden hasn't done so well, uh, nearly as well as people thought that he would. So, you know, like the, the way that's sorting out, of course, if one of them drops out, there's going to be a play for their um, their supporters. You saw, for example, Amy Klobuchar in a recent debate kind of talking to Andrew Yang's supporters because Yang had just dropped out. Um, so, of course, especially when somebody drop drops out, there's a scramble to get them to come to your side. So – Let's circle back to Ohio as a bellwether state mm-hmm. of, of politics um, and look at it as that, uh, sort of the, the uh, every state that people look at as far as trends and so forth go. When, when people go to the polls, the Democratic primary in Ohio, do people vote for – whose health care policy they like, or do they just vote for who they think the front runner is or who's going to beat Donald Trump? It, it seems like it's a real mixed message. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Ohio is in transition. Uh, I, I am of the um, camp of people out there saying that, you know, Ohio is purple. It's not blue or red. And we like, But, you know, part of me wonders whether there's been a realignment in the state moving decidedly Republican. Um, the same conversation is happening around places like Wisconsin. If you look at the current polling, um, you know, all the Democrat, all the Democrats that are running for president beat President Trump based on polling in the likely states of Pennsylvania, Michigan, um, not Ohio, um, but um, 
you know, uh, and Wisconsin, uh, but not Wisconsin. Where right? Wisconsin is a state that has seems to have shifted a bit, but then other states appear to be in play, like Arizona. People are talking about for the most part uh, the, the the democratic dream of winning Texas someday. <laughs> you know, right? Like, I mean, every <laughs> I every, still think it's a dream, but, but every but, cycle they, they right. talk about whether this is going to happen or not. So. Um, you know, so is is Ohio in place? Sure. And, you know, what I think, um, you know, of course, Pete, Pete Buttigieg uh, originally was going to be running as a, a Midwesterner from a small Midwestern like Rust Belt, quote unquote, uh, um, you know, c- city. Uh, but I haven't seen a lot of outreach to the working class folks like Congressman Tim Ryan or Sherrod Brown does in that way. Yeah, the people up in Lordstown that lost their major factory and the people over in Dayton who have suffered for years. Yeah, and, and the question with uh, somebody like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren is, are they going to come into a place like Ohio and somehow like unearth – you know, the home of the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, you know, are they going to unearth this working class, you know, um, industrial like backbone of the state? Or are we in a different day and we need to start thinking about, you know, technology investments and all of that? So I think that that's to be determined. But I think that's much more where Sanders and Warren are going to be. Of course, Warren is a little bit less in terms of the that, that kind of working class identity and more about anti-corruption and this other kind of narrative. And, and Bernie's income inequality, it, along with health care, pairs together towards that working. Yeah. And of course, you know, again, much more unites this field than, than, than divides it. Uh, of course, in a primary, you're sorting it through and people are saying, oh, my God, we can't be fighting like this. It's not even <laughs> March yet. This is a – these election cycles have become interminably long. So – you know, I think there's we're going to be in a very different point, even when the uh, when, when Ohio votes on March 17th. So help me out. Last series of questions here, and and that is, people who are my age and a little younger uh, remember the debacle of George McGovern mm-hmm. in 1972. Uh, lost 49 of the 50 states. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Minnesota. Yeah, he he was, you know, he was uh, seen as too far left, uh, too too much anti-war, too much, mm-hmm. you know, too mm-hmm. too left. Uh, have we changed as a society as we look at at Bernie and and Senator Sanders and his Medicare for all that that. That's not the same as the radical McGovern. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, because um, that's the fear of yeah, many yeah. Uh, older Democrats. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, running. Um, it, it's to be determined, of course. But you know, there critics will say, "Well, look, we're running at a time with very low unemployment rates. Like the economic indicators that generally get talked about in elections aren't necessarily favoring the Democrats right now here at right. this point of the year." Um, at the same time, what, what Senator Sanders is, is saying and what Elizabeth Warren and really all the Democrats are saying this is, you know, wages are still suffering. The actual, if you actually look at what people – I mean the stock market is not a metric of how Americans are doing, right? You know, True. Not everybody's in there. Not everybody's – that's not – what we're talking about is you – know, I mean take healthcare for example. One of the things I'm very concerned about is 
We talk about um, building this new workforce of uh, helping people to age in their homes, right? We have home health care workers. We have all these new kinds of people in our healthcare industry. A lot of them are minimum wage or very low wage, right? These are not very good paying jobs, even though we are designing a healthcare system based on them. I think that's the kind of thing that Senator Sanders is going to have to convince people of, which is, I know the, the, the metrics are good, you have a job, but you need to expect more. You, need to, you deserve a better wage. You deserve um, to not be gouged by banks for, to fund your college education. Uh, you deserve things, you know, there, there's a lifting of expectations, because if expectations r- remain very low, then you, you, I think you favor President Trump, right? In terms of those economic indicators, if people are just sort of accepting of that, I mean, the inequality is pretty out of control. That said, um, you know, the, the, the more centrist candidates like Klobuchar or like you know, Biden, I mean, they're, they're trying to just find some ways to give people an, an edge on some issues, right? That's the nudging that happens. And to me, that's more of a psychological move. That's a move of saying, we're going we're gonna to improve the quality of your life, but you don't have to sign on for a big project that, you know, makes you, um, makes you nervous. Whether Senator Sanders pulls us off or, or any of them really is going to depend on, on turnout and whether they have appeal to independence. To, you know, some, that, this has been Mike Bloomberg's entire argument. Right. right. It can't just be the old line Democrats. It's got to be a new coalition. Right. And, of, you know, uh, the, the question there is, um, you know, are we really in a time where we take on one billionaire business person, president with another. I mean, is that what presidential elections have become? Or are they still about bread and butter issues like wages, like equity, like democracy? Home and hearth. Yeah. Kind kind of issues. Yeah. Dan, as always, thank you. I want to have you back uh, closer to the general Mm -hmm. uh, as we see how all of this unfolds and and mutates between between now and then. But also good luck with your podcast, Prognosis Prognosis Ohio. Uh, It's available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and probably about any place else you get your podcasts. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Tom. Today, we've been talking with health policy expert Dr. Daniel Skinner about the role of health care in the 2020 presidential election. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hutz. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Blueberry or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR podcast directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or you can review it through one of your podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hudson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.